when you try to control your child's psychological experience through shame and guilt, bad things happen. If you instead support your child's individuality and who they are developing as their sense of self with an open and curious autonomy supportive mindset, they have better outcomes. If you have a child, chances are you know their need for autonomy. But how can we support their appropriate and developmentally healthy desire to do things themselves without getting trapped into a never-ending cycle of power struggles? Dr. Emily Edlin is a practicing psychologist, mom of three, and the author of the new book, Autonomy Supportive Parenting, Reduce Parental Burnout and Raise Competent, Confident Children. This book gives parents a roadmap to move away from hovering and overhelping to raising self-sufficient children ready for the world, and it comes out today. This idea of like a failure to launch has it's become a growing problem in our society. So what can we do as parents with younger children to minimize the chances they'll face these challenges as teens and young adults? This episode will offer you tools and mindset shifts to help you do just that. Did your kids just start back at school? Are you noticing more meltdowns, power struggles, and dysregulation as a result of this big transition? Then now is the perfect time to download my free guide, Strengthen Your Child's Emotion Regulation Skills Through Play. In this guide, I teach you five simple and easy games to play with your child in the fun, calm, connected moments that will not only help them stay more in control of their emotions when they're at home, but also when someone inevitably takes the spot they want at story time or won't share the markers or when they're just feeling antsy, they're going to have the tools they need for staying calm then too. So go to drsarahbren.com forward slash games. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash games to get this free guide. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy-to-understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Emily Edlin here with us. Uh, you have this amazing book out called Autonomy Supportive Parenting, and you are a psychologist. Can you tell us a little bit about like why you wrote this book, how you got to this work? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today and talk yes. all about autonomy support. So I... Like you said, I'm a trained child psychologist and I have three children now ages 13, 11, and 8. And in my early years of motherhood, I quickly realized that my whole training in child development, child behavior, family systems did not prepare me for motherhood. So I... <laughs> I was floundering like the rest of us. And when I started looking for guidance and support, I became so aware that the information out there was flawed and not 
very science-based and absolutely misleading at times. And I felt that experience of shame, kind of a sense of failure that I couldn't Mm. do some of these practices. For example, I could never wear my baby. It never worked. I tried, I tried those wraps and the little newborn kept slipping down and (laughs) I became more (laughs) anxious. So I just started to pay more attention to the world of parenting guidance and was very aware of the limitations and downsides. And I really wanted better for other parents who were facing this huge, you know, life change. And so I thought to myself, I want to write a book. Um, I didn't know what that was going to be when I first had the thought, but I actually grew up as a major reader and writer. I was an English major. And so writing was always one of my passions. Um, And so a few years ago, I had a professional crossroads with a move for my family. And I kind of had the opportunity to reset my career, which had been in academic medicine. And I realized it was the perfect opportunity to find some more balance and start writing again and do work in private practice. So I kind of shifted my whole life around. And that created the space for me to start writing my blog, Art and Science of Mom. And then that turned into this book. So um, so here we are. And I'm really excited because I think it's an excellent time for this book to be coming out. It is. I think one of the things that I like the most about what you're saying about like the the parenting guidance like I relate so much to this kind of conundrum of like both being a consumer of it and a producer of it. And I have this like big push pull and like love hate relationship with this because I too is like, okay, I started out as a consumer of parenting content as a mom. And I was like, huh, a lot of the stuff I'm reading either makes me feel like crap. Right. Or as a psychologist makes my skin crawl. Cause I'm like, this is like not based in any research and I don't know where, or, or has what I sometimes refer to as like the telephone tag phenomenon where it's like, yes, it's based in attachment theory and research, but it's been diluted or distorted so many times that we're, then the message it's actually communicating is not not actually accurate anymore. So you're saying it's research-based, but it's actually not accurate anymore, which is kind of doubly dangerous because it's claiming to be research-based and scientifically informed, but it's in fact not accurate. And it ends up scaring parents or like you said, making them feel like ashamed or doubting their skills. And I was like, that's horrible. And I feel like I can be a counterbalance to that. But I'm also like so mindful of like, I post on Instagram and you distill, try to distill something down to a soundbite and you lose the nuance. So it's very, very difficult. And I think books like yours where you're trying to educate parents, not so much about like, here's a script, go do this thing. Or here's a prescription, follow it. Right. But saying like, not everything's going to work for you. Not everything's going to work for your kid. How do we kind of think of it more like a framework? Exactly. And I really was committed to writing this book in a way that felt like an expert while also the feeling of having coffee with a friend, 
you know, the feeling of we're in this together. I get it. I share a lot of my own experiences and I really relate. I want to relate to the reader as a parent of this is really challenging and this is really tricky. And Mm -hmm. in the writing, I balance here are ideas. I mean, this is a starting point for you to kind of understand how I'm illustrating the research, but this isn't exactly how it has to be done. You customize it for your family and your children and what works best for all of you in your home. I love that. So let's get straight into this idea, like autonomy, supportive parenting. This is a new term. Can you explain what you mean by this? Yes. So actually, it has been in the research for over 30 years. And when I started digging into the articles, I mean, there's just no way I could read all of them. I'm not even close, you know. And so I just realized this is a huge treasure trove of evidence-based parenting that's not making it into the mainstream. So even is not even in the psychology mainstream because like right. I have never heard of this term before. I mean, I've heard of the I mean, at face value, the concept right. of supporting autonomy in children makes total sense. Right. But the idea that there's a whole body of research around this that even as a psychologist who studies a lot of this stuff I'm not familiar with. Like I'm super interested. What does the research say? So it all starts with what's called self-determination theory. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's the mm-hmm. basic the premise is that every human has three fundamental needs and that is autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So the idea of gaining mastery over skills, having a sense of self and being in connection with others and having a sense of belonging. And so this has been shown, this theory has been proven across cultures around the world. There's been a ton of research in this theory. So autonomy supportive parenting comes from this theory. And the idea is there's a set of strategies within this autonomy supportive framework that has been shown in the research to meet children's fundamental human needs of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Mm, Okay. Amazing. And when did this sort of research start? Like, what's the timeline of this? And does it map on at all to like other sort of sort of contemporary parenting frameworks that we, that are a little bit more mainstream? So in my research of the history of this, what I found is it was around the early nineties that the parenting research started studying autonomy supportive parenting as a framework and was actually in response to studying controlling parenting. So Mm -hmm. it was set up as the uh, opposite, even though it's not technically an opposite, but it was set up as the contrast to controlling parenting. So to compare, when you try to control your child's psychological experience through shame and guilt, bad things happen. Mm -hmm. If you instead support your child's individuality and who they are developing, you know, as their sense of self with an open and curious autonomy, supportive mindset, they have better outcomes. And so this is, this is how it was kind of set up in the research. Mm -hmm. A lot of the strategies in autonomy, supportive parenting have absolutely been used in popular parenting approaches like gentle parenting, positive parenting. So most 
primarily is the idea of using empathy and perspective taking and really trying to understand our children's experience in the moment, especially when there's a conflict or a disruption of, you know, having this curious mindset of what is going on with my child and Mm -hmm. then checking in with them, you know, asking them what's happening and trying to put yourself in their position and understand, okay, they haven't eaten since this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Hunger could be the culprit, you know, just trying to understand where they're coming from. So I think that's been very well established, right, in these other mainstream approaches, as well as things like offering choices and involving your child in decision making, kind of seeing them as a partner and a collaborator. But what that does that I think has gotten lost, or I haven't seen it in the other parenting approaches, is it is increasing a child's internal motivation, to do Mm -hmm. certain things. So the key ingredient that's really supported in the research is internal motivation. So for example, you don't focus as much on grades because that is an outcome, like an external outcome. You focus Mm -hmm. on how a child feels when they do well in Mm -hmm. school. Yeah. Like so process over product, kind of helping them build that reflection on How do I notice when I'm in a process? How does it feel to be in that process? How does doing inside Mm -hmm. of this process kind of build my natural intrinsic motivation like you describe? And then kind of like allowing for that versus I think, and I think the most well-intentioned parents do this and I don't blame them. I, I, I think, you know, most of us are products of parents who did it. Um, but the, focusing on the outcome because as a here's the thing I think and I'm curious what you think about this but like I think as adults our brains really have evolved to be outcome focused yes the kids brains are not kids brains are inherently process focused you look at like babies playing and they don't care if they reach the ball they might just like stretching their arm towards the ball because it feels good right like we project that mm-hmm. outcome goal onto that baby by saying, oh, you want the ball, let me give it to you. Um, Versus, you know, sitting back and saying, ah, you're reaching for that ball. End of sentence. Like there's no need, that's the process versus the outcome. And I think we live in an outcome oriented society. We live in an achievement oriented society. We live in a, you know, what is the grade? What is the medal? What is the prize? What is the paycheck? What is whatever? And so it makes sense that we are kind of conditioning our minds as parents to think in terms of the product. And I think it is a big unlearning to think about the process, mm-hmm. but it's very interesting how that's related to this sort right. of autonomy. I, I think that this is a really important piece to bring up because our culture is absolutely focused on external validation and what's coming along with that is a lot of social comparison, right? And Mm -hmm. social media is amping that up exponentially. And so it is, we are hardwired by evolution as humans to compare ourselves to others because that helps us stay part of the species and stay alive. But where that's getting completely hijacked in our modern world Mm -hmm. 
are these very unrealistic comparisons that are driving us as parents to try and keep up with what it looks like other families and kids are doing. And so we have the hyper competition of youth sports, for example, the Mm -hmm. like crazy increase in college uh, competition and feeling ready for college, which I know is way off for parents with younger kids. But I feel like I hear stories of you know, stressing about which kindergarten or preschool a child goes to because of thinking about their future in college. And so yeah, I was going to say it's, I am, I work almost exclusively with parents of very young kids and I could tell you they are thinking and worrying about college yeah. now and are a lot of their anxieties and pr- decision-making pressures are, you know, can be traced back to that, like, well, you know, will this get them into college? Will they be in Ivy League school if they, you know, don't do this math uh, tutoring at five years old? Like this idea of like everything being an enrichment, everything being about stimulation, everything being about getting like squeezing the maximum out of everything. It's like, right. mm, I, I totally, again, we live in a society yeah. that really promotes that and plants that seed and really kind of fans it, fans the flames. I'm mixing metaphors, but um, so it makes sense that we go there, but like at what cost? Right. And so that's where I'm really passionate about this messaging right now, because I'm seeing in my therapy practice, the downsides for the teenagers I work with, you know, Mm -hmm. who are developing migraines and depression and anxiety from all this pressure and these Mm -hmm. high expectations. And so what I want, what I really am so happy I have an opportunity to talk about is that this hyper competitive environment we're in and parenting right now is making us more controlling because we're thinking our child needs to be this certain way to succeed in life. Mm -hmm. So again, it's taking our hardwired parenting biology of we need to prepare our child to survive and succeed and kind of warping it right Mm -hmm. into, well, they need to be Ivy league material to have a good life, which is Mm -hmm. not actually true, but we get this sort of false belief. Right. And so when we're more controlling and have this idea of what our child needs to do and who our child needs to be to succeed Mm. by nature, we are not supporting their autonomy. Yeah, we're not seeing you know, them. If we're not we seeing the see child we, in front of us. If we see a future scientist and they feel like an artist, we're not allowing the autonomy. Right. It's true. And I and I think even on a more granular level, like if we are out of out of sync with seeing our child on those big scale things, mm-hmm. right? Like I I want you to be a scientist, but you want to be a our artist. Mm -hmm. Think about the day-to-day granular, right? Like, I don't want you to wear that shirt. I want you to wear this shirt. This is the more appropriate shirt. Or no, we're not going to eat that because, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not healthy for you. Now, again, like I say that, I know parents are like, wait, you're not, it's it's important that they eat healthy (laughs) food. Of course it is. It's important that they dress appropriately for certain situations and also in the aggregate, Mm -hmm. Right. In the micro moments, I think parents have a hard time being able to say, I give myself permission Mm -hmm. to not pick up this battle right now, to see where it goes, to allow my child to make a mistake, to get a stomachache because they ate too many cookies, to go outside when it's too cold with a t-shirt on and learn 
oof, I might need a jacket next time, right? But the child kind of getting to cross that finish Mm -hmm. line themselves to come up with that solution to this problem on their Mm -hmm. own, we devalue the magnitude that that has for potential change in a child's behaviors. Because when you realize on your own a solution to a problem, you are 10 times more likely to return to that solution in the future. If someone is imposing that solution on you and you are getting there by yourself, you are not nearly as likely to pull that, even if it worked, even if it did make you warmer, (laughs) you're still going to resist taking the jacket next time because now you've introduced a power dynamic into this that makes them, like you said, like You've took you've you've stripped me of my autonomy and my agency and my sense of competency and mastery, and now you've tainted this potential. And now, if I if I accept this, I'm in conflict with my sort of sense of self a little bit. Right. It's not mine. It's not mm-hmm. my thought. It's not my idea. It's not my agency. Right. And with little kids, where oh my god, right. how many times have you had a three year old that says, "I do it my way." No, I want to, right? We all know, all know that period of development, whether we understand it's appropriate developmental process or we look at it as like, oh my God, I have a three-nager. You know, our perception is informed by society also. Like my perception of that behavior is like fantastic. They're moving into that developmental stage of like autonomy and decision-making and they are going to have to figure it out and it's going to be messy, but whoa, yay, we've hit this milestone. Whereas I think a lot of parents see it as like, they're being defiant, they're being difficult. Like this I think is part of where you and I have been like, I want to just set the framework here a little bit. Like let's rewrite the script. These are, these are important developmental milestones. Right. And I would include that one reason raising toddlers is so challenging and I admit, not my favorite parenting season, is because it really clashes with our autonomy. I mean, that's how I felt. I was like, oh, yeah. this little tiny thing is ruling my life. You know, like I have <laughs> no free time. I can't, I have to, you know, hover and make sure she doesn't like make a bookcase fall on her, you know, and mm-hmm. it just felt like it was so demanding. And so I think it's, really critical to remember that our autonomy is important. And if we realize that, think about it, and then actually prioritize it with our own needs being met, we are then better able to support our child's autonomy because our cup is full of it. And then Mm -hmm. we can do it for our kids. Because I'm not going to lie, I've been practicing this since I've been writing the book. I've been very intentional in my home with my three children. And it can be tiring. It can be hard. Mm -hmm. When you're stressed and exhausted, being controlling is 10 times easier. And so... Yeah. If we're taking care of ourselves better, then we have the energy and the mindset to do that for our children and everyone's better off. Yeah. It's so true. I mean, I feel like when I have have a lot of parents that come to me for parenting support and they'll come to me because there's a behavioral challenge that their kid is having and they're at a breaking point with it. And I'm like, fantastic. Let's focus on you. (laughs) Where is your bandwidth? What's draining your tanks? Are you sleeping? Are you eating? Are you getting outside at all? Are you having a walk with a friend? Everyone says no to all of those things because also in the season of parenting, 
those things are not easily accessible, right? Like who gets a lot of sleep when you have little kids? Nobody. Um, but that's also a big reason why we revert to that sort of easier in the moment strategy of parenting of like, yeah, I, if I can control behaviors, right. It makes my life easier. Smooth. Mm -hmm. And if I, and, and again, like to be very clear, I absolutely control my kids. I absolutely am like, you're doing it because I said so. Stop asking questions. We're getting in the car now. Deal with it, right? Like, it's not like it's, you have to be, you know, sometimes you cannot wait 14 minutes for your kid to put right. their sock on, right? You need to just be like, we're getting in the car and we're leaving and that's just the end of it. And you can cry, but I'm picking you up and we're going because we have, like, it's a balance, right? But yep. Again, just like everything, if that's the only way I approach it, I'm not, I'm displacing a lot of opportunities for my child to practice getting there on their own. And so it's like, you know, you are allowed to lay down the gauntlet as the parent and say, sorry, we're not, we're doing it my way right now. Absolutely. But if, but we have to kind of think about like, where is my balance there? Am I, am I always leaning on that? If I'm always leaning on that, that's probably not an intentional strategy. Strategy. It's a desperation strategy. It's I'm out of bandwidth. I didn't plan the time well enough or I didn't take care of my, my needs well enough. And now I'm frustrated and stressed out and I need that quick reaction for my kids. Right. Whereas like you're saying, I think if we can do the work for increasing our bandwidth, slowing down, figuring out the moments where like, you know what, Let, let's, let's take an extra five minutes. Let's see if they can do it on their own first. Yes. And I will say, I mean, I hadn't really discovered this when my kids were toddlers. So my poor children grew up with me shoving shoes on their feet, you know, at Montessori, even though the Montessori school told us, let them put their shoes on. I'm like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> um, and they're okay. So something I want to say too is it is the bigger picture right? It's not about every single interaction. If we feel pressure on every interaction, that stresses us out and that undermines mm -hmm. the whole thing. So the idea is big picture, taking a step back. Do we think we're creating an autonomy supportive home overall? You yes. know, and I actually have in the book s some quizzes to help with self-reflection. And these are adapted from what's been validated in the research, but I just sort of modified them to be a little easier in the book. Um, but the idea is just to do some self-checking of where am I? And another big thing is that each child can have a different perception of how controlling or autonomy supportive you are based yeah. on that child's temperament and personality. Mm -hmm. And it's just that whole thing where we have to kind of flex who we are as a parent with each kid too. So I may be very autonomy supportive with one kid and very controlling with another kid. Right. No. And that's really interesting because just like our children have their own temperament, which is going to inform how much they push back and demand autonomy and how com sort of compliant and flexible they are, so do we, right? So That's I right. might be a parent who temperamentally is, you know, wants more order, feels more comfortable with a sense of control, is less flexible, is more, you know, prone to want to micromanage because it helps manage my anxiety or it helps manage my lack, my, you know, I don't, might not feel comfortable 
un, ungripping, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I might also be a parent, on the other hand, who's incredibly flexible. But if I have a child who needs more containment, mm-hmm. right? Needs someone to support them a bit more. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's not just, no, you got to know your kid and you got to know you and you got to know if, and, and sometimes there's a mismatch that doesn't necessarily mean you got a problem. It's just, you need to be aware mm-hmm. of it so you can kind of control for it or modify in ways that are going to be most beneficial to like you guys being in sync with each other. Right. And just understand, this is again, part of understanding your child's experience and putting yourself where they are to understand, you know, with their temperament and personality, what do they need from you as a parent? What is that balance of limits, like healthy limits with Mm -hmm. freedom? And that balance is going to shift depending on the kid. It's going to shift depending on how stressed everyone is, you know? (laughs) Um, So even day to day, it's kind of a practice of of evaluating where things are. Yeah. Constant fluidity. Yes. (laughs) I love that. I think too, this makes me think about like, okay, you know, if we're talking about like normative, neurotypical or like normative development, just they're at baseline. Everybody kind of is going to struggle with some degree of this, right? Like kids are going to push the boundaries and we have to decide how much we want to control or let them figure it out on their own in the moment. But then I think of like kids who have an anxiety disorder or, you know, kids who have like dysregulation issues Mm -hmm. where there really is a lot of potential for like, like meltdowns. Right. And there, there's a way in which the, it's not just child parent interplay. There's like an extra variable thrown in there. That's like kind of messing up the system a bit, like the family system. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, like how do you see this play out when you have a kid Mm -hmm. who has an anxiety disorder or a kid who has a dysregulation challenge? Right. And this is exactly why I have a chapter on neurodevelopmental kiddos, so ADHD and autism, and then a chapter on anxiety and depression as very common mental health issues we're going to likely see at some point as parents. Mm -hmm. Because I think often when reading parenting guidance, it feels like that is left out. So uh, like you're saying, other than the, what we consider typical normative in the middle experience of a kid that's already stressful and challenging on its own, adding these layers of neurodivergence and uh, mental health issues, these parents often feel left out. Like, you're not talking about my kid, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I can't use any of this. So I just want to say each could have their own book. So it was challenging to, um, you know, distill it down. But I think what's important is, for example, with anxiety, a huge part of autonomy supportive parenting is expressing trust in your child and expecting them to be independent. And kids and teenagers with anxiety are going to struggle with trying to be independent with new skills uh, Mm -hmm. because that triggers their anxiety often. So really what some advice around that is 
yes, there needs to be a lot of empathy. There also needs to be scaffolding, which is the idea of meeting your child where they're at with their skills, even if it's not what you would expect. And then helping them gently, supportively grow their skills. So if, let's say, a four-year-old is anxious about going to a birthday party, um, and you know once they get there, they're actually going to have fun, but it's the whole lead up to it and anticipation, and there's these worries, and they get really anxious, and it's hard to get them out the door, then it's good to help them understand through empathy, labeling their feelings, especially for a four-year-old who's learning that vocabulary and how they feel, doing some co-regulation, right? Some physical touch of comfort to help them calm and regulate. And then having a plan together. You could even ask them, let's come up with a plan to help this feel better so that you still get to have the fun birthday party, but it doesn't feel as scary. And you can have ideas, especially with a four-year-old, <laughs> Like we can have an exit strategy, you know, if things go terrible, this is how we'll leave, you know, something like that, that helps an anxious child at least get started. Mm -hmm. um, maybe planning a reward afterwards to say, yay, you did something really hard. That was really hard to go and you did it. And so now we're going to have this special mommy son time or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. So in this literature, I want to point out rewards are considered beneficial as long as they are not coercive. So it's the idea of acknowledging that this was something hard that you did rather than if you do this, then I will get you a Lego set, right? Yes. I um, always say that's sort of like the difference between a bribe and yeah. a reward, right? right? Usually a bribe is like, a last ditch effort in the moment to like coerce your child to do something like, okay, if you do this, I'm going to give you this. Whereas a reward right. is more like something we want to think about in advance as a way for them to help plan out their choices and motivate their decision-making, you know, like you don't have to do this. And if you, but if you do do this, this is what you can look forward to happening afterwards. And like you said, I love that you said like the reward is like, special mommy and me time, right? Yeah. I always say like when rewards are relational, um, there's that like intrinsic good feeling attached to it versus external, like you get your video game or you get this treat right. or you get to pick out a toy, or you get candy. Like, and again, sometimes I do that. Sometimes right. I like definitely do that. Child. And sometimes I bribe my kids. Sometimes I'm like, if you just get in the car, I will, I will take you to the park after we're done. Like whatever, just get in the car. So again, we're human. We're not going to be perfect. And it doesn't matter if you do that every once in a while. But like in the aggregate, like are you thinking about kind of orienting your child to like, hey, you know, what's going to make you feel a little more encouraged to, to try mm -hmm. this, this hard thing, to take this risky step? Well, and with anxious kids, I mean, part of anxiety is not feeling confident or competent. Right. And so if we keep rescuing them from those feelings by avoiding mm -hmm. what's triggering their anxiety, then we're not giving them the opportunity to develop those skills and believe in themselves. And so with the birthday party example, let's assume it goes well, <laughs> just for the sake of argument. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, talking it through of you did it, you know, 
even though you felt all those butterflies in your stomach and you had all those worries in your head, you did something hard. And now you know you can do that next time you get those feelings. And so it's putting words to that for them. And with these anxious kiddos, it's really important for parents to express that belief in them. And then because that becomes part of their internal voice. Yes. I I would say too. It's also really, like you're saying, like, yeah, it's important to kind of reflect back to them. Hey, you did it. It's also important. Like if you know your child's about to do something, it's tough for them to do that after they do it, we're not rushing to the next birthday party or we're not rushing to the next thing. Like that we take a minute and we slow down and we let their nervous system get a break because they did something that really was a big task for their nervous system to tolerate all that cortisol and adrenaline and all the stuff that comes with that fight or flight response and that they get to have a moment to rest after that. Because I think sometimes, as we were saying with our like, go, 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 go culture yep, and all of the activities and all the stuff is to like, we have to build in time for our kids after they do something that is a stretch for them mm-hmm. to sit with them for a minute, even if it's just a minute. Maybe you get yep. back into the car after the 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 birthday party and there's this buzz of excitement because they did get all the candy and the cake and the friends and they were scared, but they did it. And now they're buzzing to sit in the car. Don't just go immediately drive, right? Just sit in the car for a second and just like you model for them, right? If it's four-year-old, they're not going to come down on their own. You have to kind of just be like, ah, right. that was a fun birthday party. You had a good time. You didn't think you could at first, but you did it. And so you're modeling not just the reflection, the reflection and like that logging of that cognitive piece of like, yeah, I did this thing. I could do these hard things. But you're also modeling that kind of like physiological pause of like, okay, now you get to rest a bit, which is super important. I don't think we do that enough. Right. No, it's the decompression, right? That we all need. And yes, I mean, this is a little bit tangential, but I have so many issues with our go, go, go culture and how it affects mental health in general and the family system. And just as kids get older and they get more involved in activities and sports, how crammed the the schedules and weekends get and how worn out our kids get and, and we get. And so I think... I mean, this is just general, but I think valuing our family time and valuing rest and downtime is a huge gift to give our children. It's critical. And I do, I don't think it's totally tangential because I think it's embedded in this belief that like when we support our child's autonomy, it means we back up a bit. It means we don't overschedule everything that they do. It means we give white space, right? Blank space so that they have some autonomy to fill in things based on their interests. And a kid is, it's going to be hard for them to identify their interests if there isn't any space to play around, to have nothing time, right? To have time to wander with their thoughts. I mean, so many kids, oh my gosh, I have so many people in my practice who are like, my kids can't, you know, they can't be bored. Right. They, oh, they yeah. cannot exactly. tolerate being bored. And so it's it's a constant battle over like, how do we fill the time? And it's like, it's a legit issue. I mean, I, I, I have all the most empathy and sympathy for parents who are struggling with this because my kids don't like being bored either. But I think we have to reverse engineer that a little bit and go back to like, well, 
how often do you solve their boredom problem for them? And if it's always or most of the time, then that might also be contributing to their low threshold for the experience of boredom. And the reality is, talk about like soapboxes, we have a very skewed perception of boredom in our culture. We think boredom is a sign of laziness or a, a problem to be solved. But in reality, boredom, so many amazing things come out from the other side of boredom. That's like where all invention occurs, all creative problem solving. It's like you, boredom is critical. You need to sit and have nothing to do sometimes to be able to figure out what the next great thing you're going to do is. I also think what I see in my practice and just with people I know is how hard it is for kids in this go, go, go culture to be tuned in to their own internal, I've had too much or I don't have enough. So Mm -hmm. every kid's going to be a little different in terms of their personal battery, right? Like how much is a good medium window of stimulation and activity and how much goes overboard and how much is under stimulating Mm -hmm. and it, and allowing our kids, if we're not doing all the scheduling for them and packing schedules, it allows them to speak up and say, this is, I really want to do this because X, Y, and Z. And it's again, coming from them. It's important to them. I have kids that really, and maybe it's because I'm their mother and I'm the same way. They really like their downtime. I mean, I've just learned they cannot have too many activities. And actually I'm good with it because it means I'm not driving around everywhere. I drive around plenty. (laughs) I have (laughs) like travel soccer and competitive gymnastics. So it's not nothing, but I hear these stories of, yeah, competitive gymnastics and three other sports. And I'm like, I can't Mm. even imagine. So I think it's like letting our kids tune in and learn their internal cues of I'm getting overloaded or I need more, you know, and listening to them too when they speak up about that. Yeah. I mean, I think all of the things we're talking about today are in the service of when you allow a child to kind of figure out where they are trying to go and solve the problems that emerge based on their attempts to get there, (laughs) their clunky attempts to get there. What also is a byproduct is exactly what we're talking about is that internal awareness of like, ooh, this didn't work. I got to try something different. Or I don't like the way this feels. I need to kind of retool. But like if we don't let them kind of struggle a little bit sometimes, then they aren't going to develop, one, the awareness of those sort of negative but motivating experiences, internal experiences, but two, they're not going to develop a tolerance for them. And the awareness of and the tolerance for those distressing cues is critical. Critical. Well, because we want, I think we all want to raise kids who become adults who have balance. And we're all terrible at it. Let's just admit it, yeah. you know? And so we don't, we want better for our kids. And yeah. so I think modeling that balance, encouraging that balance, um, promoting it is a really important piece of this too. Uh, and along with that comes the messaging. You are a worthy person without all these achievements. You don't mm-hmm. need to do all this and be valuable. Oh, what a fantastic message to send to a child. If if parents are listening and they're like, okay, 
this is all very helpful, but like, where do I start? Where it's like the, where, what's the first thing I could do to start this if I'm not doing it already? What would you recommend? Well, is it bad to recommend reading my book? <laughs> not at all. Absolutely. No. But also... <laughs> So also, I actually have a Substack, and again, I'm not trying to be super self promotion here, but in no, my but Substack, this is helpful. It's yeah, helpful. what I love to do is really take it down to the granular daily living of parenthood and real issues with kids. And so, in my Substack, I really get into that. Like one of my Substacks was, is it too controlling to have a summer schedule? You know, like mm-hmm. how do we manage free time for kids home? You know, not in school how do we do it without being controlling? So I take real dilemmas and, and illustrate kind of autonomy supportive responses. And so that's in my st- sub stack and it's also on my blog at uh, emilyedlinphd.com. Yeah. Okay. So people, emilyedlinphd.com and then how did they find your sub stack and where can they get this book? So sub stack is the art and science of mom. I think mm-hmm. if they just put in my name, they could probably find me. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll link everything in the show notes too. Yeah. So people could just click. And then my book can be ordered on Amazon, Bookshop, Target, anywhere you can order books. And it should be out in bookstores today, September 5th. Yay. So definitely go get this book. Um check out Emily's Substack and her website. And thank you so much for coming on. It was really a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for the awesome conversation. I had so much fun. Me too. While we can all agree it's super important to foster autonomy in our children, this can be a very trying process for parents to endure. Helping build your child's emotional regulation and distress tolerance skills along the way can have a major impact in keeping them from completely losing their cool during all those inevitable stumbles and struggles in life. The key is to teach these skills outside of the heat of the moment in calm, connected times. So there's no better time to strengthen this ability than by integrating it into your child's play. And that's why I created a free guide with my five favorite psychologist-approved games that allow your child a fun way to practice using the same skills needed for calming their little mind and body when they're upset. Go to drsarahbren.com forward slash games to grab your free guide. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash games. So give those games a try. Let me know how your kid responds. And don't be a stranger.